Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We have been hearing a lot about helping out uh, businesses, small businesses, about helping out marginalized businesses, women and minorities over the past couple of days from the big, gigantic bank CEOs on Capitol Hill. Um, but they typically come out with surprisingly small numbers, <laughs> really. Um, I, I guess Goldman Sachs is a real is a real exception. They've been uh, doing this 10,000 small businesses program for yep. a decade now. But Chris Sakalakis joins us right now. He's the CEO of a global nonprofit called Kiva which is really uh, a microfinancing business that aims at um, marginalized business owners um, to, to raise and disperse crowdfunded loans. Um, Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. What a time to be in this business. How did you get into this? Because I know you came from the, um, the famous online wine uh, platform, Vivino. Yeah, so I've been at uh, Kiva precisely one month and two days, uh, so I'm all, I'm very Crystal new better. to it. But uh, yes, exactly. So uh, what I what I decided when I left Vivino was that I really liked technology and online marketplaces, but I wanted to, uh, I wanted to put my expertise to better use, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to fulfill two things. One was to be a positive role mo- model for my sons, who are both teenagers and to uh, work in an organization that actually has a positive impact on people's lives. And so when Kiva came along, I, it was a perfect combination of those two things. We use, uh, we, Kiva, use technology through an online marketplace, kiva.org, where lenders can come in uh, and find uh, information on borrowers uh, in the United States and around the world and decide on uh, how much they want to give as a loan. And they can give as little as $25 uh, to fund a loan for someone in Cambodia who's trying to uh, buy seed for a farm or someone in the United States who's trying to establish a, a, a restaurant. So, Chris, you know, this pandemic obviously has been hugely disrupt- uh, disruptive to uh, the entire planet, to the uh, economics of the entire planet, and in particularly on small businesses, minority businesses, things like that. So as you think about uh, your company, your effort at Kiva, how do you expect your business to change maybe going forward as you probably interact with a lot of these small businesses that have been impacted? Well, a lot of what we're doing is continuing what we've done in the past. We we made some big shifts during COVID last year, but over the course of the 15-year history of Kiva, we have funded over $1.5 billion worth of loans wow. to to nearly 4 million people in 77 countries. And roughly 10% of what we've done over the last few years has gone to businesses in the United States. The, the people we target are people who traditionally aren't able to get loans. We call them the unbanked, the people who don't have access to financial services. And so as part of what we did with COVID, we were, avail- we were able to provide loans to people who would get rejected from other banks, uh, people who couldn't get PPP loans. And so very often those are uh, minorities, uh, black and Latinx business owners, women. Um, in fact, the vast majority of the loans we do in the United States 
um, are to uh, are to women and to people of color. And to immigrants, right? I mean, how many times have I been in a cab in New York City only to find out that my driver is uh, actually was a doctor when he was working in Bulgaria or something crazy right. like that right. um, and just doesn't have any credit or any access to the financial system when he gets to the U.S.? Yeah, that's right. So we, we fund a lot of immigrants. Most of our funding goes to entrepreneurs, people who are starting businesses or who have businesses who, who want to continue. And one of the reasons Kiva was so resonant for me is because my, my parents are immigrants. They immigrated from Greece. When my dad came here, uh, he really had nothing. He started as a laborer in a steel mill. Uh, he eventually became uh, an apprentice uh, with an electrician, became a qualified electrician, started his own uh, electrical contracting business, and then started real estate development. But he couldn't have started that business or done his real estate development without access to capital, without a loan. And so the loans that we give to small businesses uh, with Kiva resonate with me because they go to entrepreneurs just like my dad. Chris, give us a sense just briefly, about 30 seconds, kind of the financial returns for the folks that do crowdfund these loans. How's, how's it worked out? Yeah, so if you're a lender on Kiva, it's a zero interest, a zero percent interest loan. Uh, but there's a, the repayment rate historically has been 96 percent. So if you put in $100 today, over the course of the next two years, you'll get $96 back. And then you can relend that money if you want. So uh, relative to a donation, uh, this is this is a loan. The money comes back, and then you can relend it. If you keep the money in the Kiva system for a period of four or five years, that $100 could result in $500, $600 worth of loans uh, back to people who need it. Uh, that's very ingenious. I was trying to think about how the economics of that work. And uh, You should do a reverse repo facility. <laughs> you know, the Fed got, I think, $486 billion at 0% right. yesterday from, like, 50 banks. Exactly. Um, I, no, it's a fascinating business, and yours is, I think, a really interesting story, Chris. So it's great um, to have smart people like you doing this kind of good work to help you know, other uh, people out there just want to get a leg up, just need to get into the system. Chris Sakalakis there is the CEO of Kiva. This is Bloomberg. I want to bring in Lauren Sauer right now, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And Lauren, I got a question. I've always thought about this, and I think because of the pandemic, I finally know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. You know, there have been anti-vaxxers around forever, and I always thought, like, who cares if their kids aren't vaccinated as long as my kids are? Now the same uh, question is coming up in terms of COVID. Like, uh, if 40% of the public doesn't get vaccinated, does it matter to the 60% of us that does? Yeah, I think, I definitely think it matters because I think we have this sort of social contract, and, and depending on the thresholds that, pe- that people are looking at, it changes how safe it is to reopen and be in public, and especially with a disease like this where we don't actually know what reinfection is going to look like and what the potential future threats are, um, the more people getting vaccinated can only be better. When you think about people who are sort of anti-vax and and, um, especially in the, the pediatric population, they're making decisions for kids who don't have sort of a say in that process. And on top of that, they started that nine months before they were born. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Um, But there are kids who and kids and teachers and parents and family members of those kids who are not vaccinated who can't get vaccinated for various reasons. They may have a vaccine allergy or they may have an immune compromise situation or 
Um, you know, there's several reasons yes, why people true. may not be able to get vaccinated. And so then you're putting those people at risk. So That's a good really point. In fact, I read like, a story. I, can't, I think maybe it was in the Times about, um, for example, people who have received organ transplants um, aren't really aren't able to be vaccinated or the vaccine doesn't work as well for them. My theory had been this, Lauren. I thought, you know, what do I care if somebody in a bar isn't vaccinated and has COVID? As long as I am, I'm not going to get it. But what I was thinking is maybe if too much, if too many people don't get vaccinated, then the virus lives on and it mutates into something even crazier. And then it overtakes my vaccine power. Yeah, I think that's always a risk. I mean, mutations, variants are, are going to continue to be a risk. And, um, and you could have a situation like we don't know about sterilizing immunity as, as much as we want to yet. Right. So you could have a situation where you're on the tail end of needing another vaccination. You get a low grade infection from that person and and it does overtake your vaccine or you take that very low grade infection that you may not even know that you have to someone else. And so there's there's situations where this chain of events happens, putting people who have no choice in the matter at risk. And that's where we want to really target um, bringing people who are not interested currently to getting vaccinated to the table and say, what's stopping you? What's holding you back? What can we do to support bringing you to the vaccine table? How about something that's maybe even, I think, simpler, which is simply masking here in, in New York? Uh, it's, I guess we're, we've had a week or two of you don't have to mask indoor. Uh, in New Jersey, as of today, uh, where I live, you don't have to mask indoor and you can actually stand at a bar and have a drink, I think, God forbid. What are your thoughts, uh, Lauren, about masking indoors? Let's, just, let, let's assume the outdoors is, you know, that's pretty clear, clear cut. But what do you think about indoors? Yeah, for me, I think the risk is still high enough. Pers my personal opinion is that I would still mask indoors wherever possible. Um, I, I think in general, we've relaxed these indoor mask mandates too soon. We're getting really close, and I think everyone's just so excited to, you know, quote-unquote, get back to normal that they're willing to let their guard down. And I, I think that is where we get into a little bit of a high-risk situation. And, and masking is not, you know, it's, it's not that hard to do, and it is a simple step that we can take to protect ourselves and protect those other people that we were just talking about, you know? And so for me, I would like to see the mask, the masking continue indoors, especially in those more crowded locations until we get to those higher um, vaccinated uh, levels. You know, um, we're finally starting to look at the most, at the simplest possible explanation for how this virus um, got started at a market in Wuhan down the street from a coronavirus lab in Wuhan. But even if the quote unquote conspiracy theories prove true, I mean, does it really matter where it came from to the medical um, field? Do, do you need those details? No, I mean, I think I think it matters to some people. And I think there there is always an interest in exploring origins. But I don't think we're going to get there with some targeted um, exploration of whether or not this is a cover-up or whether or not the origins were because of some some purposeful or unintentional things that happened in a lab. I, you know, the, we don't need that information to improve our response the next time we have a pandemic. We don't need that information to take care of these patients. We don't need that information clearly to, 
to build vaccines, to build therapeutics. Right. What we need is to focus those efforts on how we get out of this pandemic and how we move, yep. the, move the global health forward to be able to prepare for the next one. And that's not through an origins discussion. Lauren, thank you so much once again for joining us. You do every week, and we really appreciate your time. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. We should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this radio operation. Cities across the United States and the state of California, they're starting to make a case for local reparations. Our good folks at Bloomer Business Week took a deep dive of one of those cities. Susan Burfield, Burfield senior investigative reporter for Bloomberg Business Week, uh, and also the author of The Hour of Fate, Theodore Roosevelt, J.P. Morgan, and The Battle to Transform American Capitalism. Susan, thanks so much for joining us here. You guys took a look at this whole reparations issue as it relates to a small town of Evanston, Illinois. What did you guys find? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me on. So Evanston, Illinois is, um, uh, as you said, a small city just north of Chicago, and um, it has the distinction of being the first city in the U.S. to offer reparations to its black residents. And um, the first kind of effort that it's making um, is to redress the housing discrimination um, that many black residents faced um, beginning uh, as far back as 1919. I have to say that I absolutely love the story, Susan. It was really the kind of it was like a book you just can't put down. I I was taking care of my baby and trying to feed her a bottle, and I just I couldn't really do anything until baby I baby was hungry. The story. Is that what you're saying? No, I mean <laughs> I just I, I I noticed that she couldn't distract me. I I was uh, I I found it really fascinating. And at first, you know, it starts out really disturbing because. Um, I was reading about Lucia Sutton at the very beginning, and I was thinking, how is this possible? This kind of injustice in, you know, the 1900s, that's my century. I, I, I could imagine it happening in the 1800s, but it's just, um, it's something everyone should read. Even people who have been, have become kind of numb to the social justice and what the congressmen were talking about woke capitalism. But it, when you read this, you can understand why. It's worth fighting for. Um, the one thing I, I, I kept thinking to myself, Susan, is, yes, you run into these real problems, especially on the local level. And you make this point in the story. If it's done on a federal level, it would be you'd have less you'd have fewer problems. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, just thanks so much for the, the kind words about the story. Um, it was been a, um, a wonderful privilege, really. Um, to be able to spend so much time on it um, and with people in Evanston. So um, very yeah, It kind of makes me want to move to Evanston. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. <laughs> and they're good, um, apparently good. They're good people for the most part, right? If, they, if they're taking they're this trying on. To do the, yeah, they're trying to do the right thing. And, you know, to your question, um, you know, at the local level, um, at a, you know, in a city like Evanston or in any city in the U.S., um, there are always going to be different points of view about uh, what reparations should look like at the local level. You know, and part of that is kind of what kind of discrimination or injustice to uh, take on first, um, how much money uh, any city is going to be able uh, to, to use to essentially, you know, pay down the debt it owes to its black residents. Um, and, 
you know, just the nature of city government or even state government, you know, there's um, lots of opportunities for people to comment. So you can hear very directly from lots of people. Um, And, you know, at the national level, um, there's been uh, increasing momentum, I'd say, um, toward the discussion. You know, so the cities are, are taking it many steps further than what's happening on the national level. But there is at least the discussion, you know, there is, um, there are studies that would uh, help calculate how much reparations should be. Um, and of course, that's trillions of dollars. And in Evanston, we're talking about millions of dollars. How does the process actually work? If, if someone feels that they are due reparations, how's the process work? So in Evanston, um, the first round of money, which uh, is about $400,000 um, and is going to be given out to recipients this summer, uh, and essentially uh, anyone who lived in Evanston, any black resident who lived in Evanston from 1919 to 1969, um, that's the year after the federal government passed the Fair Housing Act. So if you lived in Evanston during that time, you're eligible and you're given first priority. Uh, Second priority is to the descendants of those people. And third priority is to a resident uh, who moved or lived in Evanston after that uh, and can show that they face discrimination. It's hard for me um, to be flippant about this because when you read about the Cannon family, the Simmons family, what happened to the Sutton family, you, you just have to take it seriously. But being flippant is in my nature. And I want to say that it seems like the best thing you can do for social justice if you visit Evanston is buy weed, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> because the the yeah. first the, the money that they're getting comes from the 3% cannabis tax, and they've only got one weed vendor in town. So if you do yeah. go there, stop by and get yourself a pre-roll joint or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not the only one. Um, the the, um, the alderman, as they're called, their city council member, um, who came up with the idea. Um, she's no longer serving, but I spoke to her while she was still in office, and her message was, you know, come to Evanston and please buy drugs. <laughs> Robin exactly. Rue Simmons is, was that was the alderman, no? Uh, well, that was Ann Rainey. Robin Rue Simmons, though, um, is the one who first proposed reparations um, uh-huh. idea, um, and then you know worked with some other city council members to. Uh, help create it. Um, and it was Ann Rainey who came up with the idea of using the money from this new tax, you know, money that was unclaimed, um, that they calculated would bring in about a million dollars a year. And then they devoted um, the first $10 million um, to the program. And, I, you know, maybe that will take 10 years to collect, maybe less. Well, hopefully, um, well, they can raise those taxes a little bit. I think everyone will be willing to pay a little bit more. Um, for their for good weed. But I have to say now for you as a senior investigative reporter, um, you may not notice, but as for a regular person, the history that these people have discovered, the research that they've put in to to go back three, four, five generations and get, you know, titles and deeds and the stories that they have. The story just for that, to me, is worth it. Um, I love the the family history that that they have discovered and that you've reported here. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Susan Bearfield and Jordan Holman wrote the story, First U.S. City to Back Reparations Meets Hard Reality. Now let's 
delve into crypto. I don't think we've mentioned Bitcoin at all today, Paul, or Doge, or Ether, <laughs> or Tether. Uh, Mike McGlone joins us, commodities strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence on crypto. Um, I mean, it, the volatility has been amazing, but the, the lineup of guests that we've had, Mike, has been insane. Over the last week, I have interviewed uh, Nick Carter, who is a brilliant uh, writer from Castle Island Ventures, Sam Bankman-Fried, who is one of the richest people in America now, and he's only 29. He's yep. got like $40 billion <laughs> in crypto. And Bobby Lee, who is a pioneer in the space. Um, he started BTC China and now has a really cool um, hardware wallet out. Uh, Mike, what... What are your what's your current thinking on Bitcoin as we've gone through these wild up and down swings? Is it going to is it here to stay the volatility for right now or are we getting past it? Well, hey, man, I appreciate you mentioning some very smart people that I list basically enjoyed those interviews. And I think the key thing to think about in cryptos is it's a bull market that's corrected, got way too excited. And I'm, I'm one of the people who got suckered in, too. I, what really brought me in and thought it would continue up was when volatility dropped. 60-day volatility on, on Bitcoin dropped to the lowest of the year, right before the collapse. <laughs> I was like, oh, typically that means it's going to go higher. So it was a sign that was just way too much spec to excesses. You know, the, the minute that Dogecoin got in Saturday Night Live, that was the bell ringing. <laughs> okay, let's look back. Now let's look forward. Right now, Ethereum's up 240% on the year. The Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index is up 100%. Bitcoin's up 26%. Bitcoin's a dud. The rest of the space, Ethereum's a stud. And, but I think that's, that, that appreciation is going to continue because the fundamental underpinnings are still quite strong. How about the regulatory overhang that's beginning to build here? We've seen some central bankers, including some folks in China. How do you think about that? Yes, that's a key thing, Paul. I'm glad you brought that in there. And the key thing that Kathy Wood said, there's just not much you can do to really regulate Bitcoin anymore. It's the world's largest decentralized network. It's open source software. So China has, has what China did recently, I think, is a good indication of how significant Bitcoin is. Now, here we have a country that does not have, I mean, it's becoming a surveillance state, doesn't have free full capital, certainly doesn't have discourse, and they have to limit their, their people from, from Winnie the Pooh and from the <laughs> Internet. So they have to limit Bitcoin hmm. and they have to limit ca flow of capital. So that's a significant sign, but it's also what's going to really tilt the U.S., I think, to embrace it more because there's a Cold War that's really brewing hmm. and getting more and more, and that is what I pointed out in the crypto chat this morning is it's the digitalization of money is enhancing dollar dominance. The most widely traded crypto on the planet is Tether. I've mentioned this before. It's double the volume of Bitcoin and it's a digital dollar and it's an Ethereum token. So key things there, dollars dominating, Ethereum's gaining dominance, Ethereum's that significant. And the U.S. is probably going to say, oh, we, all we have to do is nothing here and we're beating China and the world <laughs> in this big battle against the that. two major powers. Are, is there any um, crypto token that you think is ideal for spending? Because my idea is something's going to come along where people say, you know what, I don't care if a regulator embraces this. I don't care if some central bank says stay away or not. I'm going to use this and get around the system. The problem is right now it's too difficult to do that with Bitcoin because it, it's so hard to spend. Well, I'll be sarcastic. Tether. I mean, it's a digital dollar. I'll be honest. Okay. The, the digital, the global reserve currency is the dollar, and it's gaining dominance, despite the fact that U.S. GDP is declining. Because after what's happened in China and Hong Kong, the world sees, okay, 
okay, it's not the best place in the world. It's not the best, but the dollar is the best place, the best thing to transact. And then there's this global digital reserve asset. Now, it used to be gold was the digital store value. It's becoming more and more Bitcoin. So I think for spending, dollars is actually gaining in terms of digitalization. And as far as actually spending, it depends what you mean by that. The key thing that's really happening globally is a lot of third world countries or countries with don't have stable currencies like we are blessed with are all turning to cryptos and they can do it on their phones and they're getting phones because they're leapfrogging that technology. They might not have the wires to run the electricity out in rural India or rural mm -hmm. sub-Sahara Africa, but they can do, they, they're getting phones. So that's happening everywhere. So Mike, what, mm. what's the Bitcoin chat? Why am I not on this? I'll, I'll get you on there. Crypto <laughs> chat. That, Please don't. You, I don't think you want to invite him in. He'll take it over. <laughs> no, you need to be on it because, Matt, you're so funny. But I'll be in the, uh, on Saturday morning, tomorrow morning, hopping on a plane to go to Miami for the Bitcoin 2021 conference. It's supposed to be the biggest one on the planet. And it's live. It's not virtual. Yeah. That, well, right. there you go. All right. Here That's we go. True. Mike McClellan. Crypto, going to crypto Miami users Beach. don't need masks. When I go to Miami Beach, I don't go to a Bitcoin conference, folks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.